Well, it's already been a wonderful morning worshiping the risen Lord, and now we come to our time in the Word, which is going to give us some instruction about what the effects of that resurrection might be. And as we have been walking through week to week throughout our time in the Word of God, ever since January, I've invited someone from our church, someone from our body, to come and read the Word of God for us at the beginning of our time. And here's why we do that. We do that because we understand that the Word of God is simply not something reserved for the preacher to communicate to the people in the pew, but the Word of God is yes, that, and more. It is for you to engage with and read and to love as well. And we have been walking over the past 12 weeks in a wonderful journey through the Word of God together. So we're going to take a time out. We're going to pause from that journey we've been on with the children of Israel in the Old Testament. And we come to a passage in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you can find your place there now, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you need a Bible, there's one in the pew rack in front of you. You can go ahead and turn on whatever digital device you might have as well. If you're watching online this morning, we invite you to turn as well. Happy Easter to you. And I'm going to invite Dee Hopkins to come up and read the Word of God for us this morning. Dee and Daryl have been a part of this body for a long, long time, and they have been faithful not only not only in their love for this body and serving this body, but in their prayers and in their heart for you. And so I thought it would be wonderful, Dee, to have you come since you've been praying so much for this body over the years to lead us. Will you please stand for the reading of the word this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. You may be seated. Thank you, Dee. May the Lord bless the teaching. In the reading of his word this morning. Several weeks ago, I walked into our house and I heard from the second floor my daughter, she's 16 years old, saying, He's dead. No, wait a second. He might be alive. Wait, wait. Hold. No, 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 no. I think he's dead. Sure looks like he's dead. Now, The tone in which she said it was not a terror-stricken tone. I don't want you to think that her mother or her brother was laying in a pool of blood up there on the second floor. What she was looking at was her pet fish who was lying lifeless against a rock at the bottom of of the aquarium. 
And uh, so what do you do when you have a lifeless fish lying at the bottom of the aquarium? Well, you don't call a fish doctor because I don't think there is such a thing. You call Google, right? You look it up. And so Emma Grace went on a journey along with us to determine what was wrong with her fish. And believe it or not, by the symptoms of the fish, and I have no idea how she was able to determine what the symptoms of a fish are. When we take our teenagers, when we take them to the doctor, you ought to see the doctor trying to get the symptoms out of them. Are you hurt? I don't know. Where does it hurt? I don't know. You can't get it out. I can get out of a fish. But according to the color of the fish and the scales, the way they look, Emma Grace determined that her pet fish was indeed alive but had a urinary tract infection. I don't know how she got there, but she did. (laughs) If you are a fish veterinarian, uh, forgive me, but she did. Now, here's why I tell you that story. The question, he's alive or he's dead, Or where's the power? Where's the energy? Where's the life of this fish? This is a question from the passage that we just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, the question that this community of believers in this town in ancient Greece, this community of believers, this was an interesting group of people. The apostle Paul, the greatest church planner, missionary in the New Testament. You read his stories in the book of Acts. You read the story about when he comes to Corinth in the book of Acts. He establishes this church there. And this church has all kinds of questions. And so one of the questions that they asked was not, is he dead or is he alive? That's not the question they had because they had believed that Jesus had been risen from the dead. The question that they had was, what impact, what energy, what power does this have in our life? In the life to come? If Jesus is raised from the dead, what does that mean? They believed that if you died as a follower of Jesus, that was it. What about this life? Paul is going to tell him, no, 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 listen, listen, if Jesus is raised from the dead, those who are followers of Jesus, when they go on into death, they pass into new life, into a bodily resurrection. Let me just say this, church, this morning, I am thinking and praying of you who have lost loved ones over the past few months. Here is Resurrection Sunday, and I know in your hearts there's this sense of my loved one is not here, my husband, my wife, my son, my daughter, whatever it might be. Let me remind you there is hope because Jesus has been raised. All those who are in Christ live today. Amen? There's hope. But Paul says, listen, this is more than just beyond the grave it's this life as well because if jesus is not raised then your faith he uses a term is futile empty worthless it means nothing and you are dead in your sins and we who live for christ we give everything we lay it on the line for christ we are miserable people if this is our existence that christ has not been raised and this is all there is as one as one pastor said recently if christ is not risen from the dead it is game over but since he is risen from the dead it is game on amen it is game on so this is what he's saying it's game on church but in these in these first few verses that he reads or that he shares with them. He delivers something that is both foundational 
and transformational when it comes to the resurrection because for 58 verses, have you taken a look at the chapter in your text? It's 58. Hey, the preacher realizes Easter ham is waiting. All right, we're not going to go through 58 verses. But 58 verses, this is this treatise on the resurrection. He's going to put it together for us. But really, what I want to concentrate on is just the beginning in which he not only lays a foundation, but it's transformational because the resurrection is combined with the crucifixion. So the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus come together in what we call the gospel. Now, Dee just read it for us. Look at it again there in verse 3. For I delivered to you of first importance that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, was buried Friday, Saturday, and Sunday morning, and then was raised again according to the scriptures on the third day. So there you have the gospel. Paul had received this. The very first time we hear the gospel, do you realize this? It's not from the words of Jesus after his resurrection. It's from the angels. The angels who stood over the tomb, that, over the stone that was rolled away, and they stood over there, and they say to him, he is not here. He is risen. Come in and take a look. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Don't you remember? This is the angels. They're preaching at us here this morning. Don't you remember when he was in Galilee, he told you he would suffer and he would die for our sins and be resurrected the third day. There is the gospel. And so from the angels sitting on the stone to the women, to the, to the apostles, to Paul, now he's saying this incredible treasure of the gospel has been given to me and now I'm giving it to you. And notice what he says there in your text. Look at it. This is of first importance. This is the very first thing you've got to get right in the church. This is the very first thing that you personally have to get right when it comes to religion, when it comes to spirituality. This is of first importance. In the book of 1 Corinthians, he talks a lot to the church about many things, marriage, divorce, remarriage. When I take my, my wife out for dinner there in Corinth and we're eating at a restaurant and they offer food up to idols and I have another couple from my life group with me, do I eat it if it's offered to idols or don't I? How you worship, what the worship services, the, the purpose of those worships are. He goes through all sorts of things Social snobbery. He says, some of you rich are, are snobs. You're putting down the poor. But he says, this is the first importance because it's so valuable and it's so powerful and it's transforming. And when I receive this, it transformed me. And now I want it to transform you. It identifies you, Corinthians, in the gospel. That's why it's so valuable. That's why when I received it, I hung on to it with all of I have, and now I give it to you. When we think of something valuable and transporting it and giving it away, we think of it as valuable because for us, it means something. It's transforming. It identifies. It's costly, whatever it might be. Think of it when you move. When you move. If you want to torture your pastor, just tell him he has to move every single year. I, I would absolutely hate it. Because when you move, you're just overwhelmed with all of the stuff that you have in your home, right? 
And so it's a good time to get rid of some stuff. It's some good time to put some stuff out to, to, the, uh, to the curb for, for trash. But then when, when you're sorting through, hey, we, we need to pack up our wardrobe, our clothes. So you have those big brown wardrobe boxes and you put them in there. And then the dishes, you know, you want to make sure you care for the dishes. So you wrap them up neatly and nicely and you put them in a box and then you got your books and then you've got, and then the sofa and the chairs and the kitchen uh, or the um, the stuff in the living room, you know, you just put that in the put that in the truck. But when it comes to your valuables, what you treasure, what do you do? You just don't put it in a box. You just don't wrap it up and send it off. You just don't load it up and throw it in the back of the truck. If it's something that is identifiable, that is transforming to you, you hang on to it with all you got. This is what Paul's saying because it means so much. This is what the gospel is. For me, for me, um, when we were first moving, this just shows how shallow your pastor can be with the things that he has. When we were moving one day, um, I think it was from Raleigh, we were in seminary, and I noticed that my wife had taken something that had meant so much to me as a little boy, and she had put it out in the, in the trash. Hurt my feelings a lot. It was, um, it was a Dallas Cowboy football lamp, all right? I'm a big Dallas Cowboy fan. And I, I had this Dallas Cowboy football lamp, and, and it, it was by my bedside growing up as a little boy, and I had a Dallas Cowboy radio lamp that went along with it. And, and, and so these were my, my prized possessions growing up. And for some reason, I just kept it with me. And so one day we were moving, and there it is out on the curb. <laughs> and I'm thinking, that's, that's a treasure. And I, no, I'm, I'm going to run out and get that. And you know how husbands and wives are. And your wife's like, really? <laughs> how old are you now? <laughs> You're in grad school? You're in seminary? Really? Oh, but, but, but sweetheart, I mean, this means a lot to me. It, it, was, it was my identity. This is growing up. This is, this is what I, I kind of connected with when I was little. All right, all right, all right, all right. So I take it and I put it in a spot where I can get, get to it again. Well, guess what happened the second time we moved? There's the Dallas Cowboy football lamp in the trash again, right? I go back again. Finally, this time, whenever we move, I am hanging on to that thing, and it is sitting where? In the front seat of the car with me, right? Honey, get the, get the Social Security cards, honey. Get the passports. Get your jewels. Get everything that is valuable. What do I have in the front seat with me? The Dallas Cowboy football, right? This is what Paul's saying. There's nothing more treasured and valuable than this. Why? Because it transforms and it, it identifies you and it moves you from a place where you were to where you are now. Look at it in the first couple of verses here. How so? How is this so valuable and, and powerful and transformational? Verse 1. Lift up your eyes there in the first couple of verses. Verse 1. He says this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you unless... Oh, rather, which you received and for which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you and thus you believed in vain. Here's the number one way in which this gospel is so valuable. The resurrection and the cross of Christ. It redeems us from our sin. It redeems us from our sin. See, here's the story of these people. Verses one and two. This incredible transformation has taken place in this city called Corinth. Um, whenever we talk about the city of Greenville, 
Whenever I tell friends um, about Greenville or, or whenever they say, hey, we're, we're thinking about coming down to Greenville. You know what they say? We can't wait to see your city. It's so beautiful downtown. Um, we've heard about how it's been renovated. We hear about the restaurants. We've heard about the trails. You can go biking and do all these wonderful things. We have heard about your town. It's a wonderful town. We want to be a part of it. Do you know what the ancient world would think of when you said the word Corinth? (laughs) These guys had such a bad reputation. These guys and, and, and gals had such a bad reputation that 400 years before Christ came on the scene, they labeled the town with a term. It was to Corinthianize. Do you realize that that word is actually in some of our dictionaries today? To Corinthianize. You know what it means? You are so sexually promiscuous. You are so sexually immoral. You act just like a Corinthian. That's who these people are. Verses 1 and 2. They had this reputation that they were just awful people. Even by ancient Greece standards, these guys were bad news. And Paul's saying, this gospel has transformed you. Do do you want to see how he describes them? Turn over just a couple of pages over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Do do you you want to see the transformation in progress here? Listen to what he says. Or do you not know? Now, he's writing to the same church here. 6 verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Look at this next phrase there. And such were some of what? Of you. But you, here's the transformation, but you were washed and you were sanctified. That word simply means that you were being made more and more into the person of Jesus and his holiness and his righteousness. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That word justified is a strong, strong word there, which simply means this, that you, when you came into contact with this gospel, You were declared, as you received it, you were declared righteous like a judge in a courtroom. He bangs the gavel down and he says, you're innocent. This is what this gospel does. And so he comes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 and 2, and he says, I want you to see how powerful this gospel is because it redeems you from your sin. I want you to know as we're thinking about all these issues and you're trying to understand about the power of the resurrection, what it means for the life to come. And this life, I want you to begin with this and remember that this gospel redeems you, moves you from sinking away in your sin into a life of destruction and now moves you into a life in which you stand firm in Christ and in the gospel. And now you're moving and you're walking more and more like Jesus. He says, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of just how powerful this is. This is what the resurrection is. Now listen, listen. Here's where I want to zero in and speak to just your hearts this morning. 
Here's the reality. For some of you who hear those terms and you say, wow, those are big words. Those are harsh words. Can can I just share my heart a little bit? When I was getting ready for this, I went back and forth. I went back and forth. Do do you you put those terms out there? Terms like adultery and drunkard and Paul, those are hard, hard words. And the reason that he does so is because he loves those people. And that is where those categories of sin will lead anyone that walks in them into destruction. And for some of you this morning, listen, listen. Here's the reality. In your heart, you you might not say, you might not put yourself in that category. But in your heart, some of you are saying this. I'm too bad. I'm disqualified. If you only knew where the path I'm on, if you only knew where I'm headed, if you only knew what I'm addicted to, if you only knew my life, I'm disqualified, and I'm here to share with you this morning. All of this to this point has been built up to the point to say, you are not disqualified. You are right in line to receive God's grace for this transforming gospel this morning. You're not. That's why there's Resurrection Sunday. Here's the second thing it does. It redirects our purpose. Redirects our purpose. Verses 5 and 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, okay, let's keep going here. Here's the gospel, the definition, verse 5. And that he appeared, talking about Jesus, to Cephas, that's Peter, the apostle, and the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he's not talking about a church service where they're falling asleep. He's talking about some have gone on, right, have passed away. The gospel that Jesus was resurrected from the grave roughly roughly 20 years earlier prior to this writing. So there's 500, the most of them still alive. Some have fallen asleep, he says. Then he appeared to James, his half-brother. Then to all the apostles. And here's what he's saying. I want you to understand, church, that when Christ has come, this is the historical fact. This is the what happened in the resurrection. Jesus was raised, and then he says, if you need proof, remember, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you about Peter and the apostles, and, and you heard about James. James was Jesus' half-brother in Jerusalem. He's the leader of the church there. And all of these guys, Jesus came to them, and he, and he appeared to them, and I want you to know that lest you need proof. Now, whenever I used to read this passage, I used to always think, that's great. There is proof of the resurrection, and it is there. But here's what I think. I think Paul means more than this. I, I, I think when he, when he is talking about the resurrection, if we peel the layer back just a little bit more, I think what he's bringing his, his listeners in, into understanding is this, that Jesus, when he appeared to these guys, it was transforming because they claimed to follow him, but now he redirected their purpose. Peter was the one, if you remember, Peter is the one who was 
Jesus' main disciple. He would lead the early church. But you know what he was doing when Jesus was there on trial? He was denying Jesus. You know what these guys were doing? The apostles, when they were supposed to be praying as Jesus was praying, they were, they were sleeping. You know what happened when Jesus was about to go to the cross? They come in with their, their swords to fight. And Jesus says, this isn't a, a military battle. You got it all wrong. When they come into the upper room, these guys are arguing about who is supposed to be the greatest. And they're putting themselves one in front of the other. Jesus is saying, no, guys, it's about serving. When he goes to the cross, these guys run. Only the women, just a couple of them, are watching Jesus. They flee. These guys are going this direction. And Jesus appears to them. And he says, guys, I want you to go this direction. And he redirects their purpose. He redirects their lives. And he turns them towards the mission of what? That group of people would carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. They don't go back fishing. They don't go back to their trade. They turn the world upside down. Amazing what what a resurrected Jesus will do. Now, a couple of Fridays ago, my my wife and I, the kids, were gone, and so we had an opportunity to just be together, and we wanted to watch this movie called The Greatest Showman. Have you seen it? And it's a great movie about P.T. Barnum. It's the story of how P.T. Barnum started the greatest show on earth. We had heard a lot about it, and, and we knew the kids wanted to see it, and we were just so doggone tired that we went ahead and just bought the thing, right? It cost us 21 I'm justifying how in the world can you buy movies, Pastor? When it costs $21 just to rent it, and it cost me about $85 to take my family to movies, that's a bargain right there, right? So we go, we listen to The Greatest Show, and we're watching this incredible uh, story. And uh, P.T. Barnum, he lost his job as an accountant and as a clerk. And he had this dream of, of being this showman. And so he goes, and he, he goes to the bank, and the bank gives him a loan, and he buys this wax museum. And he says, here it is. This is where people are going to come. And he can't sell any tickets, hardly at all. And he comes home one evening. Remember, he doesn't have a job. He's trying to get this greatest show on earth off the ground. And his little girl is already half asleep. And she says, Daddy, Daddy, come over here. And um, Daddy, did you sell any more tickets? <laughs> and he's like, no. Um, so it was a busy day and just didn't sell as many tickets as we wanted to. He said, Daddy, Daddy, listen, you know what I think you need to do? I, I think there are too many dead things in there. You need to find things that are alive. And she goes, and they're sensational. (laughs) And they're not stuffed. And as the movie plays out, there's a a book, there's Tom Thumb. You know, the English fairy tale about the man who is just the size of his father's thumb. And he goes out. And we see him putting up these wanted signs. These wanted signs up on poles saying, wanted people who are unique. Wanted people who are curious. Unique persons of curiosity is what he wants. And he goes out and he finds these these people who are different. Some are really, really short. You have the bearded lady that sings. The 
guy that's really, really tall, and these people that do these strange acts, and he puts them all together. He binds them all together into the greatest show on earth. Do you realize this is what Jesus does? He comes to people who are unique and who are curious, and he says, because of my resurrection, I want to redirect your purpose into now, not only following me, but now you live for the things that I died for. It redirects our purpose. Last thing, this one. look at this quick example, the Apostle Paul in verse 8. It's D-read, but last of all, verse 8, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. Keep reading verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. I want you to see a picture here of someone who has been redeemed and redirected. It's the Apostle Paul. He's saying, all right, you want an example of what this gospel does? Look at me. He says, um, I was redeemed by this grace that, that Christ poured out to me. And here's the thing. He says I was, he uses this word, unworthy. I was unworthy because I persecuted the church. You see, the Apostle Paul is, is this unique character because he thought he was too good for Christ. The Corinthians thought that they were too bad for Christ and they were blinded. But Paul, on the other hand, thought he was too good for Christ and he was blinded to the grace of God. How so? Listen, listen, real quick. This guy, if you pulled out his resume, he'd be the top. I mean, he'd be in the 90th, 95th percentile of Jews when it came to their background, when it came to what tribe they belonged to, when it came to his intellect, when it came to his education. He was educated with the greatest of the rabbis and the greatest of the teachers. When it came to his passion, to his zeal, he said, I, it was unsurpassed. When it came to my heart, to defending what? Judaism. When it came to not only knowing it intellectually, but doing it, no one, no one surpassed my passion for making sure Judaism was upheld. So much so that when Jesus comes along, this guy who said that the sacrifice that I am now, uh, the sacrifice that I am now, the new presence of God, their temple is no longer needed. Your sacrifices are no longer needed. The law has been transformed by me. Paul says when he hears that, he sees Christ, he is so passionate for what is good that he is blind to who Christ is. Then he says, I was so passionate that I persecuted the church. So here he goes. I mean, he goes to the chief priests and the, and the leaders and he says, you know what? Give me permission. I, I want to stamp out this heresy, this sect. And so he goes out and he imprisons. He imprisons believers. He goes and tracks them down. He hunts them down in order to stop it. And Paul says, this gospel that came to me was so powerful. And I thought that I was so good 
that I was blind to who Christ was. And Christ should, in his judgment upon me for persecuting him, because of what I did to Christ and his followers, Christ in all his judgment and wrath should come down upon me. But by his grace, I am what I am. That is someone who has been redeemed and someone who has now been redirected. The Corinthians thought they were too bad and they were blind. Paul thought he was too good and he was blind. To the grace of God. Listen. Some of you this morning have entered in and it's the Easter thing to do in the South. It's a cultural thing to do. It's a family thing to do. And you might think, I'm too, I'm okay. I'm doing just fine. I'm doing the things that I'm supposed to be doing. I'm I'm pursuing my family. I'm I'm pursuing my work. I'm I'm living out the Greenville dream here. I'm pursuing whatever it is that God has put in front of me with all all I've got. But some of you perhaps are too good and are blind to the reality that Christ has come for your sin too. And the grace of God comes for those who think they're too bad and they miss it. And for those that think they're really, really good and they miss it. So this morning, as our team comes up and as the band comes up in order to lead us in our invitation, here is my simple call to you this morning. This is a call to those who secretly in your hearts are saying, I'm disqualified, I'm too bad. No, you're not. The grace of God has been poured out through Christ who loves you and has given his life for you. Some of you might say, you know what? I've been doing a lot of really good things, but I've been blind to who Christ is. Some of you this morning, you believe intellectually in the what of the resurrection, but you've never abandoned your life to the why of the resurrection. So as I pray and as we sing this amazing song called Come to the Altar, here is the simple, clear invitation for some of you. And that is, as we sing together, I'm going to be standing right down here. And I'm going to ask you to come. Those who who think that I've been too bad or I've been too good, and both have been too blind to who Christ is and the transforming power that that he provides to release you and liberate you from your sin. And I want you to come this morning. And I want you to shake my hand. And I'm going to I'm going to pray for you, and we have individuals who will take you to, to a back room and just, and just sit there and just be able to pour out their hearts and the Word of God to you. And this day, you can be transformed and changed. It's going to take some courage. You're going to go, it's Easter Sunday, everybody's all dressed up. Is this the day to do that? You know what? This is the day to do that. Because Christ has been working and calling and pleading and asking you throughout the course of this hour, will you receive this gospel? Father, as we pray now and as we come to the 
presence of God through our worship. Would you this morning, Father, would you prompt and move that soft heart to come and open up their life to Jesus? For us all, Father, we treasure this gospel. Lord, I pray that it will be a treasure to those who do not know you. And we pray pray this now in Christ's name. Amen and amen. Let's stand together and, and sing this beautiful, beautiful song. This invitation is simple and it's clear this morning. I'm right down front. You come as the Lord has led you this morning, okay? Thank you.